And now to hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 16 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and I ask you that you would fill me with your spirit now that I might articulate its content clearly. Uh, give us hearts and minds to receive your word. Deliver us from every distraction, from every error, uh, from every worldly thought and care, from the lies of Satan, and may we be filled and strengthened by your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. People of God, if you want to know what the high temperature is going to be today or whether it's going to rain on Tuesday, that information is relatively easily accessible to you, and it's usually fairly accurate. You can check the Weather Channel if anybody still has cable, or you can uh, check the weather app on your phone or the local forecast on the news, and you can predict with some certainty whether you need to cancel the picnic on Saturday or whether the ball game is going to go ahead as scheduled or whether it'll be rained out. This is how we do it today. How did they figure out the weather 100 years ago or even 1,000 years ago? How did they know when to plant crops, when it was safe to travel, when to set sail on the seas? Well, to help predict the weather, farmers and sailors over the centuries came up with several handy proverbs based on their observations of animal behavior, wind direction, air pressure. And surprisingly, much of this folk wisdom is fairly reliable. You may have heard that if you hear thunder in winter, it could snow in 10 days. And you know what? That's true. Thunder in the winter means a cold front is moving through, and the cold uh, uh, front is, is pressing against and pushing out that warmer, moist air. It creates thunderstorms, and then the cold front that comes in, that moves in and sits there, could be uh, cold enough for snow. Another proverb is, if the goose honks high, fair weather. If the goose honks low, foul weather. And that one has more to do with the altitude of the bird than it does with the honking of the bird. But if birds are flying high, if geese are flying high, that means the weather is clear and calm. But if they're flying closer to the ground, it could mean that there is a air pressure, there's a high uh, air pressure of a, of a storm system making it more difficult for them to fly at greater heights, and a storm is on the way. You can tell how high the birds are flying and whether there's a storm on the way. There are many of these, but one of the easiest to remember that I've heard all my life is red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky in morning, sailors take warning. And that also is fairly accurate and reliable. A red sky, either at dawn or at sunset, is... Uh, the result of the way that the, the sunlight is scattered through the atmosphere. And because weather generally moves from west to east, whether you have a red sky in the evening sun or the morning sun tells you what kind of weather is moving through uh, or has already passed over and, and what kind of weather is coming. So when we see a red sky at night, it could mean that the, the setting sun 
is sending its light through a high concentration of particles in the atmosphere, which usually indicates a high pressure system of air coming toward us from the west. So a red sky at night means that stable system is moving in from the west. But a red sunrise could indicate that the good weather has already passed over us and is being pushed out by an unstable air. And the redder the sunlight is in the morning, it could mean there's even more moisture in the atmosphere and uh, heavy rain is possibly on the way. It's interesting, though, that these proverbs don't come from the Dark Ages. They're not simply old wives' tales. They're not superstitious folly. They are, in fact, ancient and reliable ways of reading the sky and give us the ability to predict the weather. We assume that the ancient man was ignorant and benighted, and he didn't understand the world around him, and that's not true at all. Uh, ancient man absolutely knew these things, and these things were reliable such that Jesus directly refers to one of these proverbs in the Gospels. He tells the Sadducees and the Pharisees, you know how to read the skies to predict the weather, and your predictions are correct. Did you pick that up? In verse 2, Jesus said, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. And he says, yet in spite of this, in spite of the fact that you know how to read the skies, there are other signs just as obvious and just as easy to read that you can't pick up on. There are signs that you are willfully ignoring. And because of this, because of your hard-heartedness and your blindness, you are not reliable teachers. You have become hypocrites, and no one should listen to you. No one should listen to anything you say or follow you. You are unreliable, and your discernment is broken. Well, that's his rebuke of the Pharisees. Let's remember how we got to this point in Matthew's gospel. Let's uh, recall where we are. Jesus's popularity over the last several chapters of Matthew's gospel Jesus' popularity is beginning to increase exponentially. He's draw, drawing bigger and bigger crowds. And with that, he's gaining all the wrong sorts of attention from the ruling class in Jerusalem. Elite religious and legal experts have been sent out from Jerusalem to investigate him. And the conflict was escalating so rapidly in chapter 15, remember, that Jesus left Jewish territory for a while, and he went out to Gentile territory to teach and to heal and to feed the multitudes there, perhaps mostly to let things cool off for a little bit back in Judea and Galilee. He could have been gone for a few weeks or as many as a few months, depending on how we understand the timeline. But as soon as he gets back into Jewish territory, as soon as he gets back into Galilee, the critics and examiners are waiting for him. They're expecting him, and they launch back into their criticisms of him and his ministry. And now as we open chapter 16, this time it isn't scribes and Pharisees. Scribes were the legal experts. Pharisees were that very strict religious sect. This time it isn't scribes and Pharisees. It's Sadducees and Pharisees, the liberal Jewish religious sect and the very uh, conservative, rigid Jewish uh, religious sect, two groups that really didn't get along very well. In fact, they actively opposed each other. Paul, in the book of Acts, he could start a riot between the two of them with just a few words and just get them to turn on each other and fight. Um, they are actively opposed to each other. The Pharisees 
ordered their lives according to the oral law tradition of the rabbis, the Sadducees rejected the oral law entirely and they professed to accept only the written words of scripture and yet, strangely, they, the, the Sadducees did not believe in angels or in the resurrection of the body, which the Pharisees did. It's hard to keep score on what side these guys are on sometimes. Um, this is a major point of contention. The angels and the resurrection was the main point of contention between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, on one hand, chafed under Roman rule. They saw their land as being trod underfoot by all of these unclean people. The Pharisees hated the Romans. The Sadducees did pretty well under the Romans because they collaborated with them and they served them wherever they could, and, and the Sadducees became kind of wealthy under Roman rule, and they were very privileged as a result of working with the Romans. The Pharisees said that they were still looking for Messiah, and the Sadducees did not. The only thing they have in common at this point is they hate Jesus. That's, that's the only thing that they can agree on. It would have been impossible to find two more antithetical, oppositional, and yet influential groups within Jewish society and yet here they are teamed up to oppose Jesus. The only thing they have in common is that they are threatened by Jesus. He is a disruptor. He is here to mix up both of their worlds. Nothing is gonna stay the same for either of them when he comes and does his work. And because he's such an undeniable force, he is always uniting his enemies against him. People hate him and they hate his disciples so much that they're willing to lay aside all of their disagreements to unite around their hatred for Jesus. And, and later on in the Gospels, we'll see the Jews and the Romans get along to conspire in the crucifixion of Jesus. In the book of Acts, the Jews and the Romans and the Greeks are also always getting along to persecute the church. And so it's, it's always this way with the conspiracies of the wicked and the allegiances of the wicked. When we see in our society all of these strange bedfellows united, we think, what do you have to do with you? And, and what are you doing with them? What it's doing in their opposition to the church, in their opposition to the gospel, is it's exposing their real motives. It's, it's exposing their true values, which are grounded in a hatred for God, a hatred for his son, and a hatred for his people. It's not any more principle than that. It's not even any deeper than that. We assume that our, our opponents have always thought everything through really clearly and really accurately. We always assume that they are as principled as we are, and they just need to be reasoned out of their position. They just need a little logic, a little, a little dash of, of rational thought, but that's not it at all. They're not as careful as we try to be. Their starting point is hatred for God. And then they use everything around them to justify and to reason back to that. But that's their starting point. They hate God, his law, his son, his people. And then that informs and impacts everything else. And that's where these scribes and Pharisees are. It's, it's not that they have a principal objection to Jesus. They don't want to submit to him as Messiah. They, won't, they don't want to give in to him as king. They despise him, and so they're willing to lay aside all of their other principles and all of their other uh, worldviews just to, to team up with anybody who will oppose Jesus, and that's why they're united here. So these two groups come together to confront Jesus, 
and they arrogantly demand of him, they say, we want a sign from heaven. Show us something, Jesus. Do something to prove that you really are sent by God. And if you or I are standing there, and certainly many of the disciples who are standing there, hear that question and would immediately listing all of the amazing signs that Jesus has already performed, which indicated that he was, in fact, the Messiah promised by the prophets. They want a sign? They want a sign like what? Like being born of a virgin, the way that Isaiah said that he would be born? Uh, like being born in Bethlehem, the way that Micah told us that he would be uh, born in, like uh, coming out of Egypt, the way that Hosea said that Messiah would come out of Egypt, like, like the forerunner John the Baptist coming before him, the way that Malachi said would happen. Signs like that, are those the signs you're looking for? Are you looking for something else, like healing the leper publicly after the Sermon on the Mount, like healing the centurion's son in Capernaum, like calming the winds and the storm on the sea? like restoring the dying girl to life, like publicly healing the paralyzed man who was brought by his friends right in front of everybody, right in front of the scribes on that day, like feeding the 5,000, like feeding the 4,000 with a few loaves and a few fishes, in addition to countless other blind men and sick and demon-possessed who are made whole by Jesus. Are you talking about signs like that? Do any of those count? Just one or two of them. Do one or two of them count? No, they're saying, oh, we've seen, oh, yeah, we've seen a lot of stuff, but uh, we want a major sign, you know, a sign from heaven, something in the sky, something everybody can see, you know, a real sign, something really spectacular, something catering to our demands for the kind of evidence that we are looking for. I hope you can see this is not, this is not an innocent request. These are not humble men who are saying, well, Jesus, we're, we're so close. We're ready to follow you, and we, we really will believe if you just show us something. Just, just give us some proof. Is that too much to ask? That's not it at all. There's nothing genuine or sincere about this request. They have all the proof they needed. Gentiles have come to the faith on just a rumor of Jesus's authority and power over the demons and over sickness. These men have the scriptures. These men all their lives have studied the scriptures that have told about the coming of Jesus. They have been trained in the prophets. They have been trained to look for Messiah and they've rejected Jesus. This is not an innocent or humble request at all. Now, I know that you might be asking, and I ask the same thing when I read this, why doesn't Jesus just humor him? I mean, why doesn't he just do something right there that is so awesome and amazing that it turns their brains inside out and blows them away with the majesty and the glory of his work? Why doesn't he do something like that? Because he already has, <laughs> and they didn't believe. And because Jesus isn't obligated to perform for fools or to do what they asked him to do or to respond to wicked men, who are going to take whatever he does and they're just going to weaponize it and they're going to use it against him. You really think that they would believe if he were to do something mind-blowingly amazing right here? Do you really think that they would repent of their sins and follow Jesus? You really think that? Or would they just use it to, 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 
to criticize him. They would find something in that to criticize him for, something else to prove that he's not keeping the traditions of the elders. They've already accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. These are not honest men. These are not serious men. And this shows again for us, you know, all of this, I, I hope you can see in these, in these attitudes and these approaches to faith and belief in Jesus, I hope you see the root of unbelief that is present all around us today. I, I, I hope you're picking up on that because, uh, be, because it shows us that the lack of faith in men is never a direct result of a lack of evidence. People don't believe because they don't have enough evidence. People are not locked in unbelief because they don't have enough evidence. I would, you know, I would believe God, if only he would just give me the evidence I would demand, just show me what I'm looking for. I mean, I'm open-minded, I'm ready to receive, I'm ready to hear, no, no, because you're already ignoring what's right in front of you. More evidence is just gonna give you more stuff to ignore. A lack of faith is a willful hatred of God and a deliberate blindness to what is right in front of you. Read Romans 1. Paul says they are without excuse for the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen. It's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of God doing enough to reach them. And that's what Jesus refuses to do it here. And that's when he brings up the weather. He says, you know, I, I, I'm really amazed by you guys. I, I, you can look at the sunrise or you can look at the sunset and you can tell whether it's going to rain. You've got that figured out. And yet you're so bad at understanding everything else that's going on around you right now. You're so blind to what God is doing among you. You can't see that this is the end of the old world and everything that you're holding on to. The oral law tradition, the, the allegiance with Rome that you Sadducees have worked out, that your land, your wealth, the temple, the status quo, all of this is going away. So you better get ready to turn it loose and join me in my kingdom on the other side of this. And Jesus says the signs are so obvious that there's no explanation for you missing it. There's, there's no explanation other than intentional ignorance, willful stubbornness and blindness. You must be actively blinding yourself to this. The signs are just as clear as the red sky. And you can discern when a storm is coming, but you can't discern that the kingdom is coming and I am king. Jesus is not hiding this from anybody. It's openly displayed. So this is a culpable ignorance that they're showing and an unwillingness to listen to the plain truth. They, and, and it's demonstrated in this eagerness to criticize and complain and correct Jesus. And last chapter, we saw how they were just so greatly offended by him. So he says, because of all this, because of your attitude here, I'm not giving you any other sign but the one you've already been given, which is the sign of Jonah the prophet. This is the second time in Matthew's gospel that they've asked for a sign and Jesus called them an evil and adulterous generation. And this is the second time he said, I'm not going to give you any other sign than the sign of Jonah. He did this first back in chapter 12, around verse 39, and that same conversation where they accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. They essentially accused Jesus of serving Satan. And so his repeated response to this when they ask for a sign, what, it, what does Jesus say? 
They ask for a sign, and he says, go read the Bible, essentially. Show us something amazing. And he says, oh, you have something amazing. Go read the Bible. Go read the prophets. Because you've already been given enough revelation through the scriptures to be able to discern who he is and whether, in fact, he was sent from the Father in heaven. Now, in Jonah specifically, he directs him to Jonah because there they have the sign of the prophet who is three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, just as Jesus would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But it's also the story of the prophet who is sent to the Gentiles because Israel has provoked Yahweh to jealousy. Israel has committed adultery in pursuing idols in Jonah's day. So Yahweh turns to the Gentiles, converts them, and then uses them to judge Israel. That's what happens in, in uh, Jonah and with Nineveh and with the Assyrian kingdom that, that comes out of that. So, so Jesus says, go re you need to go read Jonah again and study it because you'll see there that that's what's in store for you, for this evil and adulterous generation. And if you're better at reading the Bible than you are, and if, and if you were better at reading the times than you are, you would have already picked up on that. So Jesus doesn't give them anything else. <laughs> they ask for a sign. He says, guys, you need to read the Bible. You need to read Jonah. And he leaves them, and he crosses the Sea of Galilee again. I want to pick up in verse 5 what happens next. Now, when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus being aware of it said to them, oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 or how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? That they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It turns out that the disciples are not great at picking up on the symbolism or the signs um, as, as the Pharisees are, but he's, he's more patient with them because they trust him and they've committed themselves to follow him. They've confessed their sins, they're joining with him, and, and, and he takes more time to explain things to them. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they get in the boat and they cross back over the water. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they say, oh no, we uh, forgot to bring bread. Oh, what does he mean? What does he mean by that? Leaven? What, what's he saying about leaven? Uh, he, he's got to be talking about bread, right? He's talking about bread. And it's because we forgot to bring bread again. Again, we forgot to bring bread. How many times has this happened? We forget to, Thaddeus, I thought it was your turn to bring the bread. Bartholomew, no, it wasn't my turn. It wasn't my turn. Talk to Andrew. Again, no, that's not it. That's not, Jesus has already shown them dramatically that he's able to overcome a shortage of bread. That's not the problem. He's not talking about lunch here. If they need bread, he can make bread. He's talking about leaven. That is the influence of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, because leaven shows up so much in the symbolism of the Bible, I want to take just a minute or two to, to understand what leaven is in the scriptures 
So we get the full impact of what Jesus is teaching here. Leaven and yeast are not the exact same thing. They're not precisely the same thing. If we want our homemade bread to be fluffy, uh, we pick up a packet of yeast at Harris Teeter and we add it to the dough. But that's not how bread became fluffy in the ancient world. Uh, it, instead, you would let your dough sit out and it would pick up yeast spores, natural fungus from the air, it would begin to ferment, and then you would have your starter from which you could take a little bit of dough and incorporate it in other loaves and make those loaves fluffy as well. So that little bit of dough that you take from the starter and you incorporate into the new loaf, that's, that's the leaven. So the fermentation of the old dough, the leaven, would permeate the new loaf, the new dough. And if you feed your, your starter, if you feed flour and water, you could keep that thing going indefinitely. There's a, a restaurant in San Francisco that's kept the same sourdough starter going since 1849. That's how long you can keep that, you can keep that going. But in, in the Exodus, in, in Passover, Israel was to be ready to leave Egypt in a hurry. So they were to make flat bread, unleavened bread. Bread, you didn't wait for it to rise. You, you made flat cakes of bread. Um, it's hurry up bread. It's, it's take it and go bread. It's, it's make it and let's get out of here. Leave the bread of Egypt behind. Leave the leaven of Egypt with all of the spores and the fungus and the yeast and the, and, the, and the bread of Egypt, leave that behind and come out in the wilderness with Yahweh and eat new bread. Start over. Eat new bread when you get into the wilderness. Eat new bread with the Lord. And we know that they must have gotten new starters. This wasn't a commandment for Israel must never eat fluffy bread. That's not the point of Passover because when they get out into the wilderness, they eat leavened bread at Pentecost 50 days later. So we know they had leavened bread, and they used it in worship and in, in, in festivals. The, the peace offering uh, took a, a leavened loaf as well. And so they would repeat this cycle every year. Clean out the old leaven at Passover, start over, uh, eat the hurry-up bread, the unleavened bread at Passover, immature bread, undeveloped bread, immature bread at Passover, and then eat new, new leavened bread, mature bread, fermented bread, at Pentecost, and this was the cycle every single year. Just as we have special foods for special occasions, so they ate one kind of bread at Passover and a different kind of bread at Pentecost. And this was to be a clear, tangible symbol to them of breaking off the old world and starting in the new creation, of ending old things and beginning new things. Cleaning out the old leaven is a break with the old world and the beginning of a new. And that's what Jesus is doing here with his people He's feeding his people new bread out in the wilderness. He is not feeding them the old bread, the old leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He's the new Moses leading them out of Egypt, making a break with the old world of darkness and slavery. And as we've already seen in Matthew's gospel, Jesus uses this, this image of leaven. He uses this uh, for many things. Leaven is something that, that slowly and and surely permeates the dough and influences the whole loaf. It's not you, like you can just leaven a little part of the loaf. You know, it's just half flat and half fluffy. It gets into the whole, in the whole thing. Once you get it in, it starts its work, 
and it influences everything. And that's why Jesus uses it as a positive image of the kingdom and its work in the world. But Jesus also uses it here as an image of something nefarious and evil. Bad teaching, bad doctrine, bad theology, like the teaching of the Sadducees and Pharisees, also slips in and quietly influences everything and it permeates the whole loaf. It does it quietly, it does it in unseen ways, it does it imperceptibly. A little bit goes a long way. And so Jesus says, watch out for the teaching of these men. It's like leaven. It is dangerously powerful. Don't underestimate the trouble that these men can create. And so Jesus uses strong language. He says, take heed and beware. Be on your toes. Open your eyes and look out for false teaching because a little bit of false teaching can ruin you. Now, this warning to his disciples about be, be, uh, taking heed and bewaring the leaven of the Pharisees, this is the inverse of his rebuke of the scribes and Pharisees. So he, he tells the the Jews, he says, you're so blind, you can't see the truth of what's right in front of your eyes. He tells his own disciples, you, on the other hand, wake up and watch out. Keep your eyes peeled and, and scrutinize the lies of the false teachers. Guys, you be better at discernment than they are so that you can tell the truth from the lies. You learn to read the signs of the time so that you know what is happening in the world and you know what God requires of you. So these twin exhortations in this text, two things. Number one, what the Pharisees aren't doing, Sadducees aren't doing, is discern the signs of the times. And secondly, to his disciples, Jesus says, take heed of false teaching. Beware false teaching. And these two exhortations are just as needful and relevant for us today as they were for that time. Both of these things require growth and maturity and wisdom and clear thinking and alertness in an age where the gravitational pull of our culture is toward infantilism and hysteria and dullness of thought. We live in an environment where this kind of hard-headed, adolescent, reactive arrogance is not only common, but is applauded and promoted and celebrated and reinforced everywhere. As uh, Thomas Sowell famously wrote, he says, the problem isn't that Johnny can't read. The problem isn't even that Johnny can't think. The problem is that Johnny doesn't know what thinking is. He confuses it with feeling. And uh, I wish and pray to God that Thomas uh, Soul would, uh, would have, uh, I can't remember, is he still alive? I'm, I, I meant to look that up. Uh, I, I can't keep track. Uh, but as most um, secular conservative commentators, they can point out what's wrong, but, and, and yet uh, they point out what's wrong so well, and yet still I uh, would uh, pray that he would turn to Christ. Uh, but, but he can articulate what's, what's wrong. You see, feeling is prioritized over duty Feeling is prioritized over commitment and responsibility. We are a people, we are a generation led around by our lusts, which are mercurial, mercurial and always leading us into disaster. Our senses are dulled. We have shrink wrap over our consciences. And so we can't tell what's going on and we can't beware of false teaching. 
the call of Jesus to discern the signs of the times is, is, is to hear this exhortation to the Sadducees and Pharisees, which is to them, stop looking everywhere around you. Look, stop looking for esoteric signs in the culture and in the skies. Don't look for truth in the tea leaves or, or in the chicken bones. Don't look for truth inside of yourself. Why are you looking for truth on the... the uh, the, the writings and the ramblings of basement dwellers on the internet, go search the scriptures. Figure out where we are on the timeline and what faithfulness to God looks like in the kinds of times that we're living in. Don't practice some kind of divination where you're waiting on God to give you a miraculous manifestation so you can figure out what to do. Lord, if you would only do something spectacular, then, then I would believe and obey. no. You've already been told. You've been told clearly in words that you can hear and understand that are printed right here, right here for you to read and to hear and obey. Right here, we hear and see and read what pleases God. We have it. Romans 15, 4 says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now, Jesus teed it up for them. He said, you guys, you men, you start with Jonah. For us, we have the entire canon of scripture to soak up. The whole scope of God's work of redemption, his work with his people through cycles of history and epics of history, and to consider where we are, what our times are like, what does our situation most resemble? Are, are we living in a time of wide open rebellion like the days before the flood? Are we pilgrims like the patriarchs? Are we slaves in Egypt? Are we wandering in the wilderness? Are we conquering the promised land with Joshua? Is that like our time? Are we living in the wild west days of the judges? Are we setting up a kingdom like David and Solomon? Are we living in Babylonian captivity? Are we living in a time of restoration and rebuilding like Ezra and Nehemiah? Where are we on the timeline? Where are we on the map? And then discerning that, we ask, what does faithfulness look like? What dangers should we be aware of? Who is our Pharaoh? Who is our Abimelech? Who is our Goliath? Who is our Sanballat? Who is our Nebuchadnezzar? We, 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 what is the point of conflict here in this time? Where, where is the line between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent? What does taking up the cross look like in this scenario, in this time in history? God does not require us to have some kind of hyper-spiritual premonitions or Gnostic magical ability to predict the future. He hasn't given us signs to do that. He does give us his word to hear and understand and obey so that we can understand what is going on in the world and read the signs of the times through the lens of Scripture. So that's the first exhortation. The second exhortation is to take heed and beware of the leaven of bad teaching. Just like dough will passively collect whatever spores and, and mold and things in the air. It'll collect the leaven if you just leave it sitting out. So you and your children will passively soak up bad ideas and worldly perspectives and priorities without even trying. I remember when my kids were small, I would hear them say something and I said, where did you hear that? Because I know you didn't hear that from me. Where did you pick that up from? I didn't teach you that. Well, where did they hear? It's just, it's in the water. It's in the air. It's in the atmosphere. 
It's online and it's in shows and movies and it's the neighbor's kids and the church kids and the coworkers and the, and the cousins. We're fed a steady and regular diet of nonsense. We're fed this leaven of unbelief, the leaven of rebellion. Our atmosphere is thick with the leaven of unbelief and rebellion, leaven of ignorance of God's law, the leaven of legalism, and the leaven of false self-imposed religion. It's in the air, so take heed and avoid it. Beware of it. This is the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees that's still in the world. This is the great lie that's so pervasive. Here it is. This is the heresy of our day. It's that you can have happiness and rest and peace and that you can be a good person apart from confessing your sins, submitting your life to the Lord Jesus and living every day to please the Lord above all things. That's the lie. Here it is. That, that you can be okay apart from Christ and obedience to him. And on top of that, you are free to develop your own intricate and nuanced system of religion to salve your own conscience. Just develop your own set of rules to help you sleep at night. That's what the Pharisees did. They rejected God's law and made up their own poor facsimile then tried to enslave other people to it. That's the same game that modern day Pharisees play. Make up your own values. Make up your own plan of salvation. What do you got? What, what's, your, what's your commandments? Let's make a list. What are your commandments? Recycle? Okay, got it. We recycle. We're going to rescue a dog from the shelter. You know, we used to say we got a mutt from the pound, <laughs> but now you rescue. What happened? If you rescue, you're a hero. And that's not a dog, that's your baby. That's your fur baby. You rescued your fur baby from the shelter and that makes you a good person. You fly your rainbow flag and you put your pronouns in your email footer and you don't eat chicken McNuggets, you eat cage-free, cruelty-free kale, non-GMO. <laughs> and if there is a heaven, if there is a heaven, you will probably make it in. You know, you got your coexist sticker on your Subaru and you go. Because you are such a good, compassionate, conscientious person. You see, nobody rejects religion. Nobody rejects religion. They reject Christ and then impose on themselves and everyone around them a new religion, 10 times as onerous, with all this new theological vocabulary, a list of things that make you clean, a list of other things that make you unclean, new feast days, all kinds of things to be ashamed of, other things to be proud of, and stricter than the most severe pietistic church could ever be. And Jesus says, take heed. Notice that. Point it out. Don't let them get away with it. And don't stop highlighting it for your kids. Did you hear what that cartoon character just said? Let's stop this. Hold on. This ain't going anywhere. Did you hear what they just said? Did, did, you, did you see what just happened on that show? Did you, did you, you hear what that character said? Did you hear what that politician just promised? What that news person criticized? The thing that they're promoting is wicked and it's rebellious, you say to your child, you say to your spouse, you articulate it out loud so they don't get away with it. God loves what they hate. That's what you say out loud. God loves the thing that they despise and God hates what they love. Speak up. You say, watch out and don't be like them. Now, it's so easy and it's pretty humorous for us to see this pharisaical behavior in other people. 
It's harder to see it in ourselves. But we also pick up this leaven and we make it our own so, so we can get just a little bit of good theology, a little bit of good church, a little bit of confidence that we are so right and so correct and we go to seed on all kinds of other lifestyle expectations and cultural habits that can replace the gospel and those things, this, this sphere of expectations and habits and choices become our confidence. These are the things that convince us that we are good people. What, what? are you using the right homeschool curriculum? You better, you gotta use the right one. Are you using the right essential oils? Not those, these. I don't even know what essential oils are, but uh, whatever. Where, where you put the offertory in the liturgy, it's got to be in the right place. We put it here. And if you don't, you know, I mean, God doesn't even listen to your singing if you don't put it in the right place. Whether you've figured out all the conspiracies of history, if you've got all those figured out, you know, you know who all the good guys and all the bad guys are. Um, you can have, and you, you, we have, opinions and positions and convictions, and we all have to choose whether we do this or that. It's good to have a reason why you do what you do. You must. That's not what I'm talking about. The leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees is when your self-imposed religion becomes what satisfies you, wraps around you in this warm blanket of self-righteousness, and makes you think that you are better than everybody else, while ignoring at the same time the very clear counsel of God's word. That attitude is worldly, it is satanic, and God is never going to bless it. He is never, ever going to bless that. Jesus says, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Identify in yourself, in your family, Pharisaical and Sadduceical behavior, patterns of life and thinking, and reject them entirely. Confess your sins to God and reject those entirely and pray that the Lord would open our minds and our hearts to receive his word so we can live and have union with him and see the signs of the time so that we know how to respond to the world that we're in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray, Father, that you would deliver us from the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Deliver us from self-righteousness and may the only righteousness that we take confidence in is the righteousness and the perfect obedience of your son, Jesus, who is our only hope of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.